From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. People who develop type 2 diabetes have a period of time when they're pre-diabetic, usually without symptoms. Today we're going to talk with Dr. Ramachandran Nayak about patient-centered diabetes care and how to possibly improve care for patients even before they develop diabetes. Dr. Nayak is a professor of endocrinology who is the assistant dean and director of translational and clinical research programs at Upstate. Welcome. Thank you for being here. Yeah, thank you, Amber, and uh, thanks for having me here. So this uh, typical progression of someone who will develop type 2 diabetes, there's this pre-diabetic period or an Mm -hmm. early early diabetes period where there's no symptoms, right? Right. So during that time, can diabetes be prevented or delayed? Yeah, it's a really good question. Uh, Let me go back a little bit into the natural history of progression of uh, type 2 diabetes. Even before we declare someone as having type 2 diabetes, there is almost a decade's time frame wherein people are showing progressive increase in the blood glucose levels and they are at risk of developing type 2 diabetes. This is what we call it as pre-diabetes. And the pathophysiologic abnormalities of type 2 diabetes, which is primarily insulin deficiency, insulin resistance, they set in during this time frame. And it's important to recognize this group so that we can prevent the progression to type 2 diabetes. And also it's important to realize that some of the complications, particularly the macrovascular complications related to the heart, they start, the risk starts increasing even in the pre-diabetes stage. So today what we can say is if we identify people at pre-diabetes stage, we can monitor them more frequently. And secondly, we can intervene in terms of lifestyle, weight reduction, and possibly some medications so that their onset of diabetes can be delayed and progress. Uh, the onset of diabetes can be, can be delayed. So the things you mentioned, the blood glucose levels and pathophysiologic changes, are those things that um, a patient would know is happening or not necessarily? Not necessarily. In fact, majority of the patients, they do not appreciate. Even for that matter, when a frank diabetes is set in, Many, many patients, they don't have any symptoms of uh, diabetes, actually. So it's important for that, from that perspective to screen people who are at risk to identify at an earlier stage of diabetes and start intervention. Because we have now clearly defined guidelines as to what kind of cutoffs one should use for the glucose values A1C, which is a reflection of the preceding several months blood glucose control. And we use those criteria to decide what next needs to be done in, a, in an individual patient. So before we go forward, though, let me ask you if any of this um, has anything to do or applies to type 1 diabetes. Uh, the guidelines, what I'm talking about screening for diabetes, are more uh, relevant to type 2 diabetes. Even, of course, we have type 1 diabetes, which is uh, altogether a different disease uh, okay. by its own. It's Fortunately, it's not as common as type 2 diabetes. But in type 1 diabetes, people, the disease begins many a times like bold from the blue without any symptoms. They suddenly develop a lot of symptoms of uh, excess of urination, excess of hunger, thirst and weight loss, and sometimes get into a complication of ketoacidosis. Uh, These days, there have been significant advances, I must say, in terms of predicting the risk of type 1 diabetes development in the first degree 
relatives of an index patient of type 1 diabetes and uh, we have we are actually doing at upstate uh, studies uh, what we call natural history studies to identify people at risk of type 1 diabetes even though we do not we cannot prevent type 1 diabetes completely but efforts are on a lot of interventions are being studied uh, but that's a different ball game so what i am referring okay. to is a common garden variety of type 2 diabetes uh, the guidelines what i was referring to earlier they really uh, apply for type two for type two and type two is the one that we've seen a huge increase in the number of people that are diagnosed with it the incidence is rising right yeah absolutely unfortunately not just in the united states and uh, globally the incidence and prevalence of type 2 diabetes is uh, exponentially increasing and just to put the things in perspective if you just look at the statistics i would say one out of 11 Americans have type 2 diabetes. The, so the, the frequency of type 2 diabetes is about 9.4% of the population. And 30 million, that was a number that was put out in 2015 as the total number of people suffering from type 2 diabetes in the United States. But what is uh, disturbing is out of these 30 million, only 23 million are actually the diagnosed patients. And remaining 7 millions, they go undiagnosed. That again underscores the importance of screening and trying to identify people who might be having undiagnosed diabetes. So does it make sense to screen everyone for type 2 diabetes? The way the guidelines are that we are following as part of the standard of care, it's pretty much, I would say, yes, even though, to be precise, it, it's not that every person over the age of 18 years should have Screening for diabetes, I would just like to highlight few uh, key population characteristics. For example, the guidelines state, the American Diabetes Association brings up the guidelines for a standard of care and management of diabetes every couple years. And the, the current guidelines state that everyone over the age of 45 years should be screened for type 2 diabetes. And any woman who had had gestational diabetes should be screened every three years subsequently. And if the readings are actually normal, they can continue to follow up every three years. Okay. But this being said, there are certain high-risk populations where the screening should begin sooner than 45 years. Uh, so if someone is 18 and above who have got overweight or obesity as defined by the body mass index of 25 and above, and if they have one of the risk factors, for example, if they have first degree relative with type uh, 2 diabetes, uh, they come from a high-risk ethnicity uh, or race, for example, African-Americans, Asians, Latinos, Native Americans, they're all at high risk of diabetes. History of cardiovascular disease or history of hypertension or high cholesterol, women with polycystic ovaries. So all these are conditions where one should start screening much sooner. So how do you go about diagnosing someone with diabetes as opposed to pre-diabetes? Yeah, we have uh, well-defined criteria today to call someone as having diabetes versus pre-diabetes. And we use primarily three parameters, a fasting glucose, a glucose after 75 grams of uh, glucose administration uh, with water by mouth, or the glycosylated hemoglobin, or what we refer to as A1C. So if someone has a fasting glucose of equal to or greater than 126, two hour post a 75 gram glucose value of uh, 200 and above and A1C of 6.5 and above we call as diabetes and anything below 100 fasting, below 140 of 2 hour value and below 
7 for A1C is normal and anything in between is pre-diabetes. So the guidelines have very clearly defined the, the, the diagnostic criteria for diabetes and one needs to do two separate tests to, to make to sure confirm. that to confirm the disease. Either you could be two fasting, one fasting and A1C, any combination for that matter. So these are blood tests from the patient would, would be giving blood and it shows you the amount of sugar in the blood? Absolutely. This okay. is just a blood test. And because of the convenience sake, majority of the times we don't really do these days the two-hour glucose value because patient has to drink glucose, come back after two hours. We just do a fasting glucose and the A1C. And okay. what is important to note is even within the pre-diabetes zone, for example, a fasting glucose of 101 to 125, it is not, uh, it's not that the risk suddenly goes up over 126 or and above. It's a continuum. The risk keeps increasing as one moves even within the pre-diabetic zone from a lower end of the range to the upper end of the range. And then it exponentially goes up the moment the person gets into a full-blown diabetic uh, kind of values. So when you tell a patient and you have these numbers to show them that they're pre-diabetic, that, mm -hmm. that they're going to develop diabetes if something doesn't change, how do patients accept that news and what do they need to do to change what's happening? Um, I think it, it depends a lot on the type of patient you are dealing with and what their perceptions, beliefs and expectations are. And majority of the times, I think today, we don't see a major concern. If put it in the right perspective, tell them that just like anyone can develop uh, any disease, diabetes being such a common condition, and uh, we need to put extra efforts to identify people who are at risk and also to intervene in those people who are at risk so that we can prevent the disease from happening, if at all we can. Uh, and it also subsequently leads to preventing uh, or delaying the complications of diabetes. I think when we put it in the right perspective, majority of the patient population, they do accept it and they respond in a very positive way. So if you have prediabetes, there may be some dietary changes or some lifestyle changes that you need to make. Are there medicines involved in the pre-diabetic stage? Lifestyle forms is, is, is the cornerstone of management in pre-diabetes. We still... Uh, work on uh, dietary restrictions, avoiding simple sugars and uh, restricting the calories and spacing of meals and the standard dietary guidelines. We make them meet with a nutritionist uh, whenever feasible and regular physical activity, efforts towards weight reduction. And on top of that, certain medications like metformin can be used in certain situations uh, to reduce the risk of progression. But uh, the major cornerstone is is going on, basically is going to be the lifestyle intervention. Now, uh, let me remind listeners, this is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm Amber Smith, your host, and I'm talking with Dr. Ramachandran Nayak about patient-centered diabetes care. Now, you mentioned um, the complications that can come with diabetes. And, you know, like you, like you say, diabetes, that's become such a common diagnosis. Right. So many people have it. Um, and maybe it's not as scary as some of these complications, right? Yeah, absolutely. What, what are the ones that you see most most commonly? Yeah, so we, from the medical clinical perspective, we classify them into two broad categories. One is what we call as a microvascular complications, which include eyes, kidneys, and nerves. So we monitor for people with diabetes. We ask them to go to an ophthalmologist to have a dilated fundus exam to look for diabetes changes. We look for uh, urinary 
test to look and, and a blood test to look at kidney functions every year and we examine their neurologic system including their feet for sensation etc uh, on a regular uh, annual checkups so these are the three primary complications what we call as microvascular okay. whereas macrovascular are those associated with respect to cardiovascular system and so these are the two sets of complications that includes coronary artery disease stroke etc in addition diabetes also is associated with what we call as a comorbidities for example hypertension uh, hyperlipidemia or high cholesterol levels and obesity they all go hand in hand so we need to look for and evaluate for these conditions as well uh, so today the management of diabetes is not just looking at the blood glucose values and giving medications for that but also looking primarily for cardiovascular risk assessment and managing the cardiovascular risk comorbidities evaluating and managing the complication etc all the things you mentioned it seems like if you have diabetes it influences everything in your body yeah i i would say pretty much yes most of the organ systems can get affected by diabetes but fortunately not everyone with diabetes will get it but only certain proportion of people with diabetes will get complication but unfortunately we do not know what are which, which is that one? proportion who are those people who will develop complication and who are not so unless proved otherwise we assume that everybody is at risk of developing complications and we work hard uh, to keep the control because what is well established by uh, well controlled studies is that if we control the blood glucose levels and maintain them over long period of time the risk of complication can certainly be reduced if not completely averted well, let me ask you about um, metabolic surgery or weight loss surgery. Yeah. Because we've heard that um, in the case of people who are obese and have diabetes, that it can reverse diabetes. Is that true? That is true because the metabolic surgery or a bariatric surgery, surgical procedures um, have made a major impact on the diabetes management in the recent years. For example, a gastric bypass surgery, what we call as a Roux-en-Y gastric bypass um, but it's not for every diabetic uh, person. So these surgeries are predominantly meant for people with what we call as a morbid obesity, uh, extremely over uh, extreme obesity uh, situations. So the current guidelines, just to give a very high level overview, if someone has a BMI of more than 40, uh, or even for those with BMI of 35 to 40, which is morbidly obese, um, we recommend bariatric surgery or a metabolic surgery uh, as a treatment of diabetes and it has been demonstrated that 30 to 50 percent of the times the diabetes can be completely reversed and even if the diabetes could not be quote-unquote cured with a metabolic surgery the requirement of diabetes medications what they are taking can be significantly brought down and those with a lesser amount of BMI anywhere from 27 and above or 30 and above um, we need to carefully consider whether or not a particular patient is a fit person. It's not a standard blanket recommendation that everybody should have it. But yeah, but to answer your question in a one-line answer is that yes, it, it has made definite difference. So it might work for some patients. It definitely works for people with extreme obesity. Yes. Well, thank you so much for the information. My guest has been Dr. Ramachandra Nayak, Assistant Dean and Director of Translational and Clinical Research Programs at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air.